Well, good morning again. We've been spending time in Genesis, Genesis, excuse me, since the end of August, called the series The Stolen Kingdom. And it has been a look at these early chapters in Genesis, many of the founding stories of the Bible. In these stories, we have seen many of the basic truths of our faith. The triune God created the universe, filled it with creatures to share in his love, his authority. He created the spiritual beings to govern the heavens and us people to govern the earth. He planted a garden temple called Eden, a beautiful place where man and woman would work shoulder to shoulder to extend the borders of Eden across the face of the world. But that original goodness was stolen by rebel angels who tricked Adam and Eve into disobeying and eating the forbidden fruit. They enticed Cain to murder his brother Abel. They tried to steal Yahweh's promise of a serpent stomper by corrupting the human bloodline. Here at the beginning of Genesis 6, and we'll be kind of in a couple chapters of Genesis this morning, not just one, one passage, but at the beginning of Genesis 6, it appears as if they have succeeded. In chapter 6, verse 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of humans was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. We wouldn't be blamed for thinking that it looks like, it seems like the creator is abandoning this world to be devoured by evil and death. But not so, says the very next verse, for we see in verse 8 that Noah has found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. The promise holds God is faithful even in the darkest time. <clears throat> we generally try to focus in our sermons on one particular passage, but this morning we'll be kind of doing a flyover of Genesis 6 through 9, which is the story of the great flood. I thought about having, having us read all of that, but uh, decided against it, which I imagine we all agree with. There is just so much here, months of preaching probably, but alas, I'll only point out a few broad themes. The story of the flood is one of the most famous in the Bible. That's part of why we kind of wanted to approach it as a whole block. It was a demonstration of the Creator's power and righteous judgment of sin. But it's also a story of hope, salvation, of Yahweh's long-suffering love. The corruption of sin spread across the whole face of the earth, but he did not abandon this world, his people, or the promises he had made. When I was a lad, my grandfather took me fishing. This probably was the only time it happened because I didn't enjoy fishing, but he did, and so he took me along on a small aluminum rowboat. And while we were out on the water, this particular I don't remember what time of day it was. This particular afternoon, the wind picked up, clouds moved over the sun. It looked like it was set to storm. And in my alarm, I stood up where I was in the bow of the rowboat. I don't remember what I thought 
I was going to do or where I thought I was going to go, but I wanted off the ride. I was old and big enough to rock the boat, but not old enough to realize that that would happen if I moved too much in the boat. I put myself in more risk of falling in the water than the approaching storm. And generally with boats, overboard is not the place you want to be. My grandfather, Navy veteran, old man of the sea, master of rod and reel, stayed calmly seated in the stern, and he told me to sit my butt down. I explained that we were sinking. He asked me, you got water in your ears? No. Then you're fine. Sit down. He told me to trust him. We find ourselves in a similar position. There's wisdom in us, or for us, in trusting the captain and staying seated in the rowboat, even when the storms start rolling in. We are all aboard the good ship Calvary. She's a bit bigger than an aluminum rowboat. The wind of hardship is picking up. Dark clouds of disagreement threaten the sunlight. We are fearful, anxious, angry. But the captain is with us, and he has instruction for us out of this familiar tale of the flood. Moving down to chapter 6, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Instead of children, which is what was supposed to be being fruitful and multiplying, we see that violence and wrongdoing is multiplying and spreading over the face of the earth. And whether we agree, last week we looked at Genesis verse 6, verses 1 through 4, whether we agree with the supernatural reading that I presented last week or not, all of the interpretations of that passage agree that what was, what's being described is a violation of boundaries set up by the Lord. There are distinctions between angels and people, between people and animals, between God and people. These distinctions are good. That's how the world was created. And so when these boundaries are corrupted by violence, oppression, selfishness, when people treat one another as objects, when people treat one another as animals, when people think of themselves as being God, all of these things are a rejection of the good order of creation, a terrible reversal of what Yahweh has declared to be good. Moving to chapter 7, verse 5. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. He built the ark. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters, or flood of waters, came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. And verse 11 says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. Now, this isn't merely a, a burst pipe or a high tide or a flood surge that Genesis is describing here. The great deep, which is referenced in verse 11, is the massive reservoir of water hidden under the ground that was split from the waters above when the Lord made the sky in Genesis 1. 
the windows of the heavens were opened to let that, those waters above come crashing down to meet the waters below. We can imagine that when Yahweh created the world, it was really like this little bubble of air and light in this vast ocean of darkness. And on the day of the flood, he popped the bubble. The flood tells us that the Creator will not let evil overrun the world. The stolen kingdom has a limit to its power and its effect. Evil, injustice, will not run rampant forever. It often feels like they will, and I think we often wonder at God's patience. What is he waiting on? Both ultimately, for when Jesus comes back, and I think in specific situations, why do bad people keep getting away with their bad things. The flood was a judgment on wickedness, but it was also a judgment of promise. It wasn't only judgment. It wasn't only destruction. The story doesn't end here in Genesis chapter 7. There was one bit of order floating on this vast ocean of chaos, the ark. And really what the flood was, is it was a reset of creation. God made Noah and his family kind of new Adam and Eves. Adams and Eves. Yahweh reset the creation rather than let it melt into chaos and corruption. And what, what that really means is the flood tells us that new creation is the answer to the power of evil and death. And obviously the New Testament has a lot more to tell us about that. But that new creation, a resetting of creation, is the answer to evil and death. The flood tells us that God will carry his people through turmoil and disaster. Chaos doesn't have the final word. For the ancient Israelites, the folks who wrote the Bible, the open seas were the embodiment of terror. In small amounts, like in wash basins or the little brooks of Israel, Water was a symbol of life, but a whole lot of water where it doesn't belong is the stuff of nightmares, as it still is today. All God's people who've dealt with a flooded basement or worse know this to be true. Water is chaos and darkness. It's where monsters like Leviathan live. The open oceans are a symbol of social unrest and the ferociousness of the Gentile empires. And so fittingly, Boats are often used in the scriptures to symbolize the Lord's protection and guidance. We think of Jonah in the storm, Jesus and the frightened fishermen, Paul on the way to Rome. In the Middle Ages, the church itself came to be understood as a boat in the tradition of Noah's Ark. Many of the old churches in England have beautiful timber ceilings meant to remind of a ship's hull. So Calvary too is a boat of sorts. We are a vessel of God's mercy and goodness, crewed by sailors and disciples who also sometimes get spooked by the storms and squalls of life. Friends, it's not news that we live in troubled and troubling times. A pandemic around the world, injustice and greed in many of our places of power, our nation bears deep and serious divisions. 
our own bodies turn against us in sickness and old age. And these difficulties are not going to come to an end anytime soon. There's no simple solutions for many of the, the issues that we face as a nation, as a community. And I think the next several months especially are going to be deeply challenging. Many of us will face isolation, disappointment, hardship, sickness. We've already been facing challenges. We should never forget that the serpent is still out there seeking to steal and kill and destroy. Many churches are closing. Many churches are buckling under conflict. We see our fellow vessels vanishing beneath the waves. We see the wind in darkness. In our fear, anxiety, and anger, we stand up in the boat. Perhaps we can get off. But generally with boats, overboard is the last place that you want to be. And Calvary, I think that our encouragement today is that the captain is here with us. He's in the boat. My granddad had enough wisdom not to let me take the boat by myself out onto the lake, but he was there with me in it. I think Jesus is telling us to sit down, to stay where we are, to rely on him. The story of Noah points to many truths, and I selected two of them because it was the two I wanted to talk about. But I think that the, the story of Noah points, points us to two truths that we can rely on as the boat rocks and the wind picks up. The door and the deal. The door and the deal. And these truths are like the bench of that rowboat. Truths that we can rely on. Truths that we can sit down on, if you will. Truths that will help us stay afloat. And so the first is the truth of the gospel. The Creator is making a new family from all tribes and nations by the blood of Jesus. We are adopted as daughters and sons of God because of Jesus' death and rising again. That means that no one is a part of Calvary or any church unless God wants them to be there. And we see this symbolized in the door of the ark, looking at uh, chapter 7, verse 15. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. We see that Yahweh chose who got on board the ark, and then he closed the door. That was it. And doubtless there were probably others who wished to, especially once it started to rain, but the door was shut. No one was stowing away. Noah didn't come upon his neighbor Frank stuffed in the cabinets after a few days at sea. The Lord's favor was the only way on that boat. Now obviously a church's doors are never closed. Well, I mean physically, yes, but you know, we're not locking anybody out. The good news of great joy is for all of the people, after all. But God is still posted at the door, letting in those he wants. I think we can be confident that the Lord desires all people to come to know the truth. But he does that in his time, and obviously not everybody goes to the same church. The truth of the door is that God has handpicked Calvary's crew. In John 10, Jesus compares himself to the door or the gate of a sheep pen. 
we can be confident that Jesus is a generous door. He's a door that loves being open. He lets everyone in who asks, and he also protects from wolves and thieves. Our adoption as sons and daughters of God trumps every other relation, allegiance, affiliation, or membership that we have. It must. We are Christ's people before we are anything else. We don't have to like one another. That's a happy side effect. We don't have to like each other, but we do have to honor the fact that no one is aboard on accident. Nobody shouldn't be here. Whether your family's been coming to Calvary since the rocks were soft or you just wandered in one day, each of us is here because this is where God wants us to be. And church, let us continue to trust each other, to give one another the benefit of the doubt. Let us have generous spirits. Do not rush to judgment. Do not assume the worst of your brothers and sisters' intentions. Fight for this fellowship of believers. Many of us have been and will struggle to feel connected to Calvary, especially as, well, especially as I imagine we'll be inside for most of the winter, but you know, who knows, but probably for a long stretch we'll be indoors and then many of us will have to join online. I don't, I don't have a magic wand to wave to make anybody feel more connected to Calvary, right? You can only get so many calls and texts from Ben before you're ready for him to stop calling and texting you. We all have a responsibility to hunt down opportunities for fellowship and friendship. October was Pastor Appreciation Month and I felt very appreciated. There's no reason we can't make November and December Calvary Appreciation Month. Send one another cards, give one another gifts, get together outside or at a distance, give people a call, write a note, leave obnoxious lawn ornaments in Clayton's bushes. Let us insist on being the kindness of the Lord to one another. Let us insist upon that. The second truth that we can rely on in our rowboat is the truth of the deal, the covenant of promise that Yahweh makes with Noah and all humankind in Genesis chapter 9. The ark came to rest on a mountaintop. Noah make, builds an offering or an altar and offers an offering to the Lord. Yahweh blessed the family and made a new covenant, a new deal with Noah. Chapter 9, verse 11 says, I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. The deal with Noah is more or less entirely one-sided. Noah and the people don't have to do anything for God to come in on his side of the deal. No matter what humanity does, God will not destroy everything like he did with the flood. And Noah's covenant anticipates the new covenant in Jesus' blood in many ways. God has acted in Christ to break sin's power, forgive us, and grant us new life in his kingdom. He did that without, well, some people were asking, but he did that for the world at large without anybody asking, and hardly anybody noticed when it happened 2,000 years later, and we're still telling people about it for the first time. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All he requires is our pledge of allegiance and faith as we walk with Jesus day by day. He doesn't require perfection. He knows he won't get it. He doesn't require knowing all the answers. He doesn't require always, uh, us always feeling happy or excited. But faith, trust, allegiance to Jesus 
and the ways of his kingdom. As many of us know, Yahweh named the rainbow as the sign of this everlasting covenant. And it's interesting that rainbows appear later on in the Bible when the prophets see the Lord. They often see rainbows that come along with him, that the Lord's appearance is like rainbows. I think that that tells us that the Creator God wears his promises like garments. Not because he'll forget if he doesn't, but because he is faithful and generous to come through in the ways he has promised to come through. And as we face the storms and winds of these next few months, let us sit firmly down on the sure promises of God. Jesus promised never to leave us or forsake us. The Lord never promised that we would avoid all pain and hardship, obviously, but he did promise to walk with us the entire way. We can trust him to see us through to the other side of these trials and hardships. And I, I do believe that there is another, an other, a far side. These things are not forever. This ark will one day come to rest. I don't know why all this has happened this year. It's easy to rush to explanations, but we really don't know why things unfold the way that they do. But I am confident that there is a future for this family of God's people. We have a message for Washington and our other towns that Jesus is a good and faithful friend that all are welcome at his table. I pray that you too will feel the Holy Spirit moving like a shift in the wind. He has plans for us on the other side of this pandemic. We should take advantage, to some extent, take advantage of the downtime now because I truly believe that he will want us to get busy quite soon. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, it says that Yahweh was grieved to his heart by the sinfulness of people. And that word grieved is the same one that's used for Adam and Eve's pain that they experienced because of the curse in Genesis 3. Yahweh, the creator, the king of everything, shares the pain that we feel as we make our way in this fallen world. Jesus looked with compassion on the harassed and helpless crowds like sheep without a shepherd. I don't know about you, but the theme of my whole 2020 can be summarized as harassed and helpless. But the Lord has not left us alone in the open sea. As we remember the truth of the gospel, as we cling to God's promises, let us also rely on one another. I thought to myself many times over these last few months that while I wish that the pandemic and these different things weren't happening, I'm glad that Calvary is the church family with whom I get to weather them with. We're stuck with each other. And we're stuck with Jesus. And he will stick with us through whatever comes next for our church and for our community. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But Jesus was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? 
Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the disciples marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the wind and the waves obey him? The answer, of course, is that Jesus is the creator God, trustworthy, faithful, careful to keep his promises. May we continue to cling to him and trust. Amen.